0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Good afternoon and welcome to the Cybersecurity, Critical Infrastructure, and the New Era of Information Sharing webinar. We welcome you today to discuss several emerging cybersecurity initiatives that focus on joint government-private collaboration and information sharing with the goal to strengthen our defenses against the evolving cyber threats faced by both governments and private entities. So joining us are three experts in the area of cybersecurity. Leading us off will be Dan Sutherland, who will cover the president's May 12th executive order. Dan is the chief counsel for CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is responsible for cybersecurity, telecommunications, risk management, and infrastructure resilience. Our next speaker will then be Judge Terrence Berg, who will cover the discussion about the use of Rule 41 search warrant in addressing the thousands of compromised Microsoft web servers last April. Judge Berg was appointed to the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan by President Obama in 2012. And our final speaker will be Chris Peters, who will provide us with an industry perspective representing a critical infrastructure entity. Chris is Vice President and Chief Security Officer for the Entergy Corporation, and is responsible for oversight of all aspects of cyber and physical security risk management, cyber threat intelligence, strategy, policy, and vendor security. So Dan, let's have you kick us off with the first topic. And I might mention the recent executive order published last week on shoring up cybersecurity defenses in critical infrastructure, and you most likely also heard President Biden's speech at the office for the director of national intelligence when he said, and I quote, if we end up in a war, a real shooting war with a major power, it's going to be as a consequence of a cyber breach.
1: I think perhaps I won't start there, if you don't mind. Um. <laughs> but these are busy days at CISA, our plucky little agency of uh, not quite three years. It's, we call ourselves the nation's risk advisor. We try to help our stakeholders to understand and manage the risks to their cyber and physical infrastructure. We became known to people to some extent through the election last fall and the, and the work that we did to try to enhance the security of election infrastructure. And maybe just referencing that would be helpful. It's a way to understand what we do as an agency. That was one particular context, one particular sector.
0: Yeah. And Dan, just just interrupt for a moment, because you have so many tools on your website. I'm curious if, as a typical private entity, we're always checking you know, who's looking and keeping track and so forth. Have you seen an uptick in activity on your website accessing those tools?
1: Oh, tremendous, tremendous amount. For example, during the pandemic, we put out a, a document. There's a guidance on who are essential critical infrastructure workers. Who's the workforce that are essential? And that was a, a document that was designed to help state and local governments to plan uh, how they're going to allocate ppe and vaccines and, and other services things like that that was accessed over three and a half million times and continues to get quite a bit of activity we've got a, uh, a cyber hygiene scanning tool which anyone can sign up for it's free it's something we can do scalable and we're doing that for over two thousand organizations now they're getting repeated reports from us regular reports from us on just what we're able to observe so just yeah a number of points like that that i could i could reference yeah
0: yeah, that's great and very useful. I'm I'm wondering how you, uh, other than have your website, obviously, how you market that to the folks that really need it. And maybe Chris, you can respond there. Do critical infrastructure industries use these tools? Do you know? Is that something that you're aware of? In in uh, from your perspective.
2: Uh, yeah, Claudia, we do use a, a lot of the resources that DHS has, and they've improved uh, over the years tremendously. And uh, we've had mobile teams come in and assess our uh, cyber and physical security posture with our gas operations, and we do a lot of information sharing with with DHS. So that information that they produce is is, is beneficial, and we we see DHS and FBI and other federal partners as not only partners that are extension of our security program that we rely on to bring in that insight that only the federal government can bring from, from the tools and capabilities they have at that level.
0: Yeah, and here's the potential disconnect that I see because we get reports. And my co-chair Maureen Kelly uh, sent an email this morning indicating there are so many critical infrastructure companies that that don't have the resources uh, of an energy that may not be aware of the kinds of uh, resources and help, how do you get that information out? How do you make that, that critical um, information sharing work?
1: Well, uh, it's a tremendous question. We're blessed with some new leadership at this time. Secretary Mayorkas, our new director, Jen Easterly, Chris Inglis, the new national cyber director, and others, they're all asking these questions as well, which is good for us to kind of go back and, and refresh how are we approaching these issues and how could we accelerate it? We promote uh, our services through uh, information sharing and analysis organizations or information sharing and analysis uh, centers, which are sector based. So that's one big way that we do it. So we have a, you know, the energy sector is very sophisticated in this area. The financial sector is very sophisticated. Others are less so, but we have relationships in each one of those um, sectors where we're trying to promote, what the services are that that we have to offer and how they can take advantage of it.
0: Yeah. And this sort of goes to the meat of this section two of this executive order that I'd like you to discuss because it had some pretty aggressive deadlines (laughs) for getting things done, uh, including a deadline that happened in June, a deadline three weeks ago in July. How are you doing on those deadlines?
1: We're hitting them all. Thank you very much. Um, Let me just give a little overview of of the executive order for those who are not familiar with it, and then we can talk about some of the specifics. But um, a couple of overarching thoughts I wanted to give. One is that the executive order is trying to use the procurement power of the government to try to drive up our, our cybersecurity posture in the country. So we're trying to use our procurement power on the theory that U.S. government, the executive branch of the U.S. government is a major consumer. And if we say to do business with us, the business must be done in this way and this way and this way, that we might have impacts in the marketplace. And then I guess the second overarching thought I wanted to give is kind of related to that is we're looking at whether there might be ripple effects that come from these type of actions in the context of even standards of care. So, for example, how might regulators interpret and enforce based on the things that that we have uh, put out. How my state attorney generals or or other um, federal trade commission and others might look at what we're doing under the executive order and say, those are the types of activities the government's telling you you need to do. That's what you need to do in your context as well. How my industry standard setting bodies look at these things. How my courts uh, look at at these standards in a litigation context. How might insurance companies leverage the type of work, so we're thinking about um, that as well. But buckets of things in the in the executive order: one, improvements in information sharing about incidents and potential incidents. What we've had really an amazing run of very serious cyber incidents since December, uh, and it's illustrated a lot of the problems that we have observed over that we have all observed over the years in terms of the obstacles to sharing information between government and private sector about these types of incidents. So there are a number of provisions in the executive order that are designed to deal with this, particularly in new contract clauses in section two that would federal acquisition regulation, the federal acquisition council will put out um, that will uh, require people who do business with the federal government to um, do it in X and Y and Z ways, and particularly with reporting of certain incidents. So that's one big thing. The second big thing is um, improvements in cloud security recent instances show we, we really have a lack of visibility in the cloud environment and we must address that. So again, we're going to, the executive order requires us to set a set of security principles for the cloud environment. OMB is gonna develop a cloud, uh, a, cloud, a cloud strategy for the whole government. We are going to develop things like a technical reference architecture and and, uh, governance frameworks. So it's a lot of interesting, important things, I think, in the context of cloud security. Third major bucket is um, improvements in the development of software used in the supply chain. What we found is that the development of commercial software often lacks transparency. We don't know what has gone into it. And it lacks a focus on security. So this is primarily an area that the Department of Commerce and NIST is leading. They're gonna develop a software bill of materials. They've already developed a definition of the term critical software. There's gonna be um, standards set according to what is the most critical software. So there's just a a bucket of important information there. Again, outside of our lane, we're commenting on it, but really being led by the Commerce Department. And then the last kind of big bucket that I'll mention is um, improvements in our relationship with other federal agencies for example, when there are incidents in other federal agencies, we find that our incident response teams and their incident response teams aren't using the same taxonomy. So we're going to create a federal incident response playbook. So we all are approaching these issues in similar ways so that makes uh, things just move much more smoothly. So that's kind of an overview of, of the executive
0: order. Yeah, you know, and, and Chris, there, because there was an energy playbook referencing the playbook that's in referenced in the executive order, which seems to be pretty comprehensive. I've looked at that, and I'm imagining that, um, and Dan, you're probably aware of it as well, that presumably something like that is what you're looking at, very plain English, lots of colorful pictures of <laughs> what you should be doing.
2: Yeah, no, I would just, just to reiterate, how important those areas are that he just listed out uh, around cloud security and, and supply chain security, endpoints. Those are all challenges that we have as well. So any anytime we can bring more focus and investment in partnership around those areas, we can solve those types of security challenges collectively. So I think that's a these are all positive moves to strengthen the, the ecosystem, whether it's on the federal and the private side. And in many cases, they, they intersect.
0: Yeah. And Judge Berg, I'm, I'm curious because as it always happens, the courts are sort of the last to get <laughs> the evolving issues um, in the way of, of lawsuits. What do you see out there in the way of cybersecurity issues and these these kinds of evolving standards, have you seen any kind of, of uh, movement in the bringing of lawsuits?
3: Well, I, I haven't seen too many lawsuits that relate directly to these kinds of standards where the government's trying to improve the baseline, if you will, for the standards that the uh, private companies are using. I think it's a very good development, something that the, the government's been talking about, whether through private uh, public partnerships uh, or other means. Uh, when I When I first went to go work for CSIPs, and that's the Computer Crime Intellectual Property Section back in 1999, they had something called the National Infrastructure Protection Center that was essentially trying to do the same kind of work. I don't really consider myself an expert, as these uh, gentlemen are, but I have been a very intense observer of this over the years, and it's been disturbing to see that the same issues that were very much at the forefront of what the government was trying to do in terms of working with the private sector, way back then, these same issues are still uh, at play now uh, with the sharing of information, the outreach between government and the private sector, the need to secure our systems. I think, I mean, I need to say this: I think we've failed. we failed in doing what we need to do now. These things that uh, Dan is talking about. They, I think, are very positive things because I think they represent proactive actions by the government that will try to pull the private sector together. But uh, it's been very disturbing seeing what I feel like I've observed uh, in terms of the cybersecurity incidents that have continued to occur all along and are just getting worse and worse. We don't really see that many cases that involve this uh, directly. Most of the cyber-related cases that we see in the civil area are trade secret type theft cases that sometimes do involve intrusions, you know, unlawful intrusions where somebody's hacking in, but oftentimes just involve a, uh, an individual that works for the company and takes the, takes the trade secrets uh, without necessarily uh, hacking into the system's
0: yeah and your mention of intrusion and and dan this probably goes back to you too I, I saw that there was a recent bills indicating a study that the dhs was going to to do to determine hacking back um, an amendment of the computer fraud and abuse act that allows entities to take affirmative action if they notice unusual activities within their networks and and You know, first of all, I mean, the typical IT department, and and Chris, you're probably aware of this too, without the kind of sophistication or forensic ability, there are some pretty wild cowboys and cowgirls out there in IT departments. Um, And then the oversight is saying and and the 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 administration will provide oversight of these kind of hackback activities. What do you think about that?
1: I, honestly, Claudia, I'm not familiar with that uh, legislation. So I'm going to guess that perhaps it's something that uh, DOJ is leading, which would be appropriate. They should be. You, there certainly are a host of issues associated with that, including legal, but also including technical, as you, as you point out.
3: I had a question for Dan. I was wondering, Dan, do you, in addition to all of the incredibly important work that you've been talking about in terms of raising the standards and providing all these tools, uh, that will help protect uh, systems. Do you interact with the criminal side much and with DOJ on investigations, or is that something that falls outside CISA's uh, mission?
1: Well, that's a it's a daily, hourly interaction because our our role and responsibility is to help uh, remediate networks and make sure that people's networks are functioning. To do that uh, work, we have to work side by side with the FBI and the Justice Department as they investigate the crime that takes place. So that's something that we've worked very carefully on for a, a number of years. Um, just one example is um, uh, the FBI operates the NCI JTF. It's their task force that focuses on cyber crime. So that would be after your time, but it's CSIP is a, is, is a major part of that. And then and then, uh, and then the FBI. So that is that's an, uh, a very sophisticated operation center. We have an operation center as well that focuses on network defense, and we have relation, We have people from both organizations sitting on each other's floors, and and it's not just like one human being. There's also a pipeline of information that's flowing on a daily or hourly basis. Yeah, that's an extremely important area of cooperation that has to be there.
0: And Dan, how is that going to change with you as the focused center for reporting under some of this draft legislation, that CISA is the agency that will be getting these reports now?
1: Yeah, um, well, there, it's actually a a well-established uh, system already. Uh, we receive have been receiving reporting. OMB has required all federal agencies to report incidents to us for some years. Uh, we also already receive, um, through the cyber uh, through the mechanisms established under the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act of 2015, we have a portal through which we receive information. So we have a, a well-established process and guidelines about how to share it back out. So uh, it's, it's a, a well-organized process that exists now that w- can just be expanded. And that's why I think FBI and DOJ are comfortable with it. The reporting can come to us and it just gets to them Right away, there's an established process for that to happen.
0: And Chris, maybe you can respond in terms of the Energy ISAC um, and describe a bit about that. If folks may not be aware of those information sharing <clears throat> analysis centers um, and how that reporting works from your end.
2: Yeah, so we 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 have a very uh, you know effective relationship with the the ISAC. They're they're important you know, clearinghouse for the the energy sector. So there's a lot of uh, bi-directional information sharing that, that does take pl- place between uh, the, the industry and, and the ISAC uh, and that, that ranges from, you know, break-ins of substations, copper theft, to cyber intrusions, to, you know, other forms of, of threats that could impact the system. So I think it's a, it's been an effective model, it's improving. Um, you know, the, like, you know, all, you know, information sharing forums, there, there does, you know, require some maturity that still needs to take place, but uh, we find it to be a useful tool and, and very important, you know, part of our program. I mean, some of the, the most critical information intelligence that we get from an indication and warnings perspective uh, comes from the ISAC and it's, and it's, you know, information that we share with, with the operators and it's information that we share with our executives as well. You know, whether it's a Solar Winds breach or some kind of geo, geopolitical event overseas, it's a you know a really good clearinghouse.
1: Can I, can I make one point about that, just to build off what Chris just said? We're uh, I, I would like to introduce a, a phrase that I think might help people think about information sharing. Information sharing is such a broad, ambiguous uh, term, and we are talking more and more in these days about operational collaboration. In other words, let's share information with one another so that we can do something about the situation that sits in front of us. It may be um, a a vulnerability that a security researcher has identified to us or one of the platforms has identified to us. Let's collaborate right now. On Do Do you use that software or hardware? What needs to be done for you to figure out whether somebody's already exploited that vulnerability or or it could be an incident that's ongoing so operational collaboration is a more specific I hope maybe it's a term or a concept you can wrap your arms around more so than just information sharing
2: That's a great point Dan. You know, in many times information sharing is the term that that many people can understand they can get their arms around you know in cyber it's you know we need more clearances or, or more information sharing but it's not the panacea. You know, to solve our problems, and if we look at the evolution of the relationship with the private sector and DHS on solar winds, you' you're seeing that evolution to the operational model. So we've had this event. What do you what steps do you need to take as a company to you know understand the risk, the exposure, and the remediation, the mitigation steps you need to take as a, as a company? And that, that advice or that, those recommendations that we get, that we receive from the government is, is beneficial to bounce off our program to understand if we're hitting, you know, all the right controls or the, you know, the processes around, you know, dealing and understanding that threat. So I think Dan makes a great point there.
0: Yes, thank you. So, Judge Berg, the Rule 41 search warrant granted by Magistrate Judge Peter Bray from Southern District of Texas. That was pretty amazing and pretty creative, and I'd love to have your thoughts and comments on that.
3: So, it was a very interesting warrant to review and and read. Of course, it was a redacted version. We only had that available, so some of the facts in the affidavit were not uh, Viewable didn't tell exactly what all the facts were. So, essentially, to get a warrant, the uh, FBI or whatever the law enforcement agency is has to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, present an affidavit to whoever is you know, the prosecutor on the case, and they review that, and make sure that it has probable cause, that there's a likelihood that there's evidence to be found where the place is being searched, and then take that to the magistrate judge. The magistrate judge reviews it make sure that it has probable cause as well and meets uh, the particularity requirement and all the other requirements of the Fourth Amendment and Rule 41. And then the Magistrate Judge will approve it. And that's how you get a search warrant. Uh, now, in 2016, Rule 41 was amended to deal with a problem that we had in cyber cases because cyber cases tend to involve computers that are located in many different places and oftentimes countries as well because when you're dealing with intrusions, oftentimes the uh, hackers will use different computers to jump off from, that are located in different places. And Rule 41 used to require that wherever you were going to search that location, uh, you had to get the search warrant from a magistrate judge who was in that same district where the property was that you were searching. And this meant that in cyber cases, which in some ways was a good thing for the U.S. Attorney's Offices to get to know each other because all the different cyber prosecutors would have to work with one another. We have a network of cyber prosecutors called CHIPS, Computer Hacking and Intellectual Property uh, Prosecutors, which I I was one of those as well when I was at uh, DOJ. And um, so they would work with one another and you'd have to present your warrant there. And then they would have to go and present it to their magistrate judge and get the computer search there while you would do it in your district. And sometimes you'd have four or five or multiple different districts involved in some of these cases. So in in 2016, the rule was amended to allow one magistrate judge to issue a search warrant for computers located in different places. As long as it was a case involving uh, uh, an intrusion uh, that were some Uh, information or computer system might be damaged, which just means the impairment of the integrity or operation of the system. And so that's what was allowed in this amendment. And what we have in the warrant uh, in the Microsoft Exchange case is a very unusual kind of warrant because as, as I think everybody knows that that case involved Tens of thousands, it, it appears, that the warrant refers to possibly up to 60,000 or more uh, intrusions that occurred by the introduction of a web shell into the Microsoft Exchange server. And what a web shell does is it allows whoever the, the hacker or the group is that installed that to essentially get administrative control over that server. And that would involve access to all the email. It could also allow uh, files to be destroyed uh, or exfiltrated, and so it's it was a very serious uh, breach, and Microsoft became aware of this. They then revealed and, and explained what it was, and, and so you also had other hacking groups that uh, tried to get access after Microsoft revealed that this was happening, and so this is what the uh, Department of Justice and the FBI were investigating when they got this warrant. So, what the warrant did is it asked for authorization for the FBI <clears throat> to essentially send a command to all of the infected computers that had this web shell on it. You can't tell exactly how many there are because that's redacted. It looks like it's in the hundreds because just looking at the affidavit, you can see it refers to X number of computers and it looks like it's about three digits. And so I'm just guessing that it's in the hundreds of of, uh, computers that were infected. And so they were going to send a command to these computers that had the web shell on them to essentially delete themselves, delete the web shell from the computer. This is a pretty unusual kind of warrant because usually what a search warrant does, needless to say, is it searches for evidence. It's an evidence-gathering tool. That's the traditional role of a search warrant. Here, although you could say, and I think that's the way that the Justice Department looks at it and the way the magistrate judge probably did too, you could say that this would amount to a seizure because uh, they took control of that web shell and then ordered it to be deleted. It would also be a search in the sense that the, uh, the warrant authorized the copying of that web shell, which is essentially just a, a file Uh, basically a computer code or software that was put into the computer. So they would be able to copy it, but then they would be able to destroy it on the resident computer where it was. All of these, they think, they think of as being on-site computers rather than in the cloud. Apparently this wasn't a problem in the cloud. And so that's what this warrant does.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. And, and to me, it's this whole new light on we're from the government and we're here to help you. And Chris, I'm sure that the sophistication of your unit, and although you probably didn't have on-prem exchange servers, but uh, you were probably able to uh, pick that up pretty quickly and respond to see if you had any vulnerability. A lot of companies obviously didn't. Um, and a lot of companies that, that use third-party IT people that, that really don't have that, that kind of wherewithal to know what's going on. And, and clearly, as it was laid out in the warrant, Um, so Judge Berg, um, how do you see this going as, are we going to see more of these kinds of rule 41s? And Dan, is this something that, that from the law enforcement side, you're going to have more very active, um, FBI agents who are really here to help us because we don't have the IT people to do it.
3: Well, let me just say a couple of quick things, but I'm very curious to know what Dan thinks as well. Like this kind of warrant I think presents uh, some some questions as far as whether or not Rule 41 was really intended for this kind of purpose. And I don't, I don't know for sure. In some ways, I really admire the work of the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office that put this together because I think it was very helpful to the victims. It's a very public safety oriented action that was done by the Department of Justice that clearly helped all the individual computer owners that had this, this malware on their, on their system. Normally we think of a warrant as being for evidence gathering rather than for a proactive public safety activity. There was an element of this that I thought was very interesting in that the in order to be able to access these web shells that were on all these individual computers, according to the warrant affidavit, the FBI had to actually have passwords for each of these web shells. That is very amazing to me. And I, I don't understand from reading the warrant, you can't tell how they got these passwords. I, I mean, normally that would, be, that would be quite a feat to do if, if they were individual passwords for some hundred or more computers that had these web shells on them. Uh it's it's unclear how they how they did that, but that's again my hat's off to the investigators that they were able to do that. But I think to me, the, the big question is: can you use a search warrant to take proactive action to let's say remediate a problem on someone's computer? Here they were they were copying it. That falls within the typical evidence gathering goal of a search warrant. But you could imagine a situation where they weren't needing to copy it, or where some kind of a an emergency, if you will, or crisis required the deletion of some kind of malware on a system without necessarily copying it first. I'm not entirely sure that that's what Rule 41 was intended to do, uh, and it may be that some other kinds of authorities would be appropriate to consider for the federal government that would enable the uh, Justice Department or other agencies to take this kind of action, or maybe a different kind of order uh, authorized by a statute. So those are those are some of my thoughts, but Dan, I'd be really interested to hear what you have to so. say.
1: Well, Judge Berg, I think you're not going to be very interested in what I have to say because I'm not in a position really to comment on the Justice Department's future plans. I will say that uh, we are very pleased that we are on the same side of these issues as as the FBI and these and these prosecutors who have some very creative, powerful tools to use. And, and as you know, in this case and the uh, Colonial Pipeline case, where they recovered some ransom, they're willing to try things that have not been tried before. So we're just very impressed with them. So glad that we have such a close relationship, and they're on our side.
0: We are in the last couple minutes. I will say. And much appreciate your active involvement and participation in today's webinar. Dan Sutherland from CISA, Judge Berg from the Eastern District of Michigan, and Chris Peters from Entergy. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for attending. And all that on that, I wish you all a good afternoon, and thank you so much for your participation.